Welcome to Promethea Rising. My guest for this episode is Gabby Kalapush, Executive Director of the Clean Air Partnership. Gabby is passionate about local governments and the role they can play in building energy conscious communities. She has been working to motivate and support local government action on clean air and climate change for over 20 years. Her passion has been encouraging clean air and climate change action and building partnerships that enable collaboration between communities and all levels of government. Welcome to the show, Gabby. Thanks so much for having me here, Karen. Really a joy to be joining you today. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your sustainability work with the Clean Air Partnership? Sure, that'd be great. Um, so the Clean Air Partnership is a charitable environmental organization. We, Our main modus operandi is to work with municipalities to increase the implementation and ambition of their climate change actions. And one of the ways we go about doing this is that as each municipality undertakes a clean air climate change action, we get them to share what they've done with all the other municipalities. And then we ask a very simple question. If one of you can do it, what would stop all of you from doing it? And then based on the collective brain power, people identify that many of the issues, research gaps that they need to address. And then we worked collaboratively and collectively to address those so that we make sure that it reduces the amount of workload on each of the different municipalities while building critical mass of support and eventual implementation and then ideally scale up. And so what have been some of the successes you felt you've had over the last decade? So I'll give you, we'll start out with one of the first successes, and this was about two decades. So it started out when the Clean Air Council started out. One of the first things that happened, it was largely focused on air pollution at that point in time. And one of the first activities it did is identify which municipalities had smog alert response plans in place. So, for example, a smog alert response plan speaks to the actions a municipality will not undertake on a smog advisory day in order to reduce their personal contribution to air pollution exposure for Ontarians. So one of the key things that we started out with is just identifying which municipalities had smog alert response plans and what were the actions that were part of their smog alert response plans. And then on one, it was just a very simple Excel spreadsheet. It had all the municipalities on one side and all the actions on the other grid. And then we put an X where which municipality was was not doing which action on a smog alert day. And then within one year, all of the municipalities had smog alert response plans and all of them had all the actions that they were going to forego on those smog days. So I think that was a very, very simple kind of example of how this very simple collaboration can really up municipalities' games. And then what ironically happened is in 2005, we had a a horrible smog season in the summer. I think there were some like 50 odd smog days. And one of the municipalities came back and said, you know, we can't stop doing this for 50 days in the summer. And I was like, well, how about we change them from smog alert response plans to clean air plans on things we shouldn't be doing on 365 days of the year. (laughs) And that's when we kind of moved into clean air and climate change plans as a core responsibility of municipalities to do their diligence to identify what they can do to reduce their personal contributions to air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. 
So you have a really interesting model to replicate and scale some of the best things municipalities are doing. Absolutely. And then from that example, it moved into um, one of the key things that was going on with regards to energy efficiency on on the municipal corporate end. So it was looking at their municipal buildings and energy efficiency within their own buildings. Looking at LED traffic signals was one of the first initiatives. It was sharing the business cases of LED traffic signal retrofits and then LED street lights looking at it from fleet activities that municipalities were undertaking, all the way towards home energy efficiency retrofit programs, advancing home energy retrofit programs for both the commercial and residential sector, advancing green development standards that would address the sustainability metrics of new developments. That could include things like how much precipitation is dealt with on site, or it could include things like how close it is to active transportation or green infrastructure, and also energy performance and GHGs associated with the operations of the building themselves. So those are some of the actions that we've moved into as well, including active transportation plans and complete streets policies, a number of different areas. But it followed along the very simple premise that each municipality builds on the work of previous municipalities that have taken leadership role on this. And then everybody just collectively keeps raising the bar. So how would you describe the change that you're leading? I would call it change management lazy style. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's just so much to do, not nearly enough resources to do it. So we have to be very efficient in how we go about moving change forward. And change is not the easiest thing, especially not for governments. Um, I would, you know, certainly I think change is easier at the municipal level of government. And as you go into higher levels of government at the provincial and federal level, it becomes more challenging. But even within the municipal sector, any change is not easy in any kind of governmental body. And so why is that? What makes that change hard? And why does it get more difficult as you move up in terms of levels of government? One of the reasons why we really pitch the role that green development standards can play in moving the country as a whole towards where we need to go, which is like net zero buildings. One of the key things that happens is that when a municipality considers how they're going to help their new developments move towards net zero emission buildings, They take their own market into perspective, understand their stakeholders, what needs to happen, which climate action might be the most relevant to them based on, you know, whether they are high growth community or a low growth community. And from there, they kind of look at their their opportunities. When when you scale it up at the provincial level, you've got to take a larger diversity of capacity our resources into consideration than you would at the municipal level. And then when you take it up into the federal level, not only are you dealing with, you know, the differences between, you know, a municipality or community to a province, but you have to take this national perspective. And as you can imagine, the market would be very different in North Bay than it is in Guelph, or it would be very different in Red Deer than it might be in Toronto, for example. So it sounds like one of the lessons that you've learned is very much tied to regional differences and, you know, the uniqueness of communities and especially where they are in Canada. Yeah, and I think it's about finding, like, you have a better understanding of what the specific circumstances of the people you're working with to make the change happen. You have a better understanding at a local level than you would at a provincial level and certainly better than a federal level. Plus, you have a lot of common ground that you can find at the municipal or community level. 
And so what are some of the other lessons that you think you've learned over the years about working in this space and in the way that you are? And does it have something to teach some other sectors beyond communities and local government? I I think one of the biggest kind of lessons that is driving me at this point in time in my life is that incrementalism is no longer adequate. (laughs) I think that's one thing. Like it's You know, I've been working in the climate change field for about 25 years. And if, you know, I personally thought, you know, when we made progress 25 years ago, we had this runway to work with that we could build this kind of build this momentum. But we've stayed on incrementalism for far too long, as far as I'm concerned. And we no longer have that luxury to stay in that realm. We have to deal with systemic and the system as a whole to change the system because incrementalism isn't going to get us where we need to go in time. And so what does that look like for you? How is that changing your approach? How's it changing some of the conversations you might be having? Well, use an example. Like, I'm really quite excited because we're going to be having this huge disruption into a bunch of sectors within our community. I'll use an example of the energy sector. For the last 100 years, our energy system, while it you know obviously has improved over that time period, it's not all that different. Like Thomas Edison would understand exactly. You look at our electricity system outside, or and you know and understand what's going on with it, with the guides like the big generation, the big transmission as our solution for how we meet Ontarians' energy needs. However, I would say that our energy world and options and opportunities are going to change significantly in this coming decade. And no longer will we have to rely on the big gen, big generation, big transmission. We will have more opportunities to meet our local energy needs with local energy solutions. But I will and how I think the systemic changes needs to happen is we have an infrastructure set up to support the big gen, the big transmission, and we don't have an infrastructure set up to support those local energy, distributed energy opportunities. So it's the system of our energy planning that really gears us towards the energy system of the past rather than really enabling us to move towards where the energy system of the future is going to be. And I think that's a particularly big risk for Ontarians because we seem to be doubling down on the old energy system with you know nuclear refurbishments and relying on natural gas for electricity generation, building pipelines to community natural gas pipelines to communities at a pretty significant expense for how much it costs to bring all that infrastructure to new communities. And one of the main modus operandi for why they would be extending the natural gas system into those communities because the high price of electricity in comparison to natural gas. But the main problem that they haven't done is you know, based on some of the calculations I've seen, it's going to take about 30 to 40 years of ongoing natural gas use by the customers in those communities to pay for the infrastructure investments of the expansion of the pipeline. That's really setting us down the energy system of the past for the next 30 to 40 years when we should have really actually looked at okay, their energy costs for heating and their home is too expensive. What can what other options are available to us? 
One, we could rely on, you know, the natural gas investments, or we could decide to invest in energy efficiency for that building, renewable generation on site to address the additional needs that they might have. What might be the return on investment, not only for them as as a customer, but also for the energy system of the future of the world and where Ontario wants to go? But unfortunately, that isn't what we're doing on our energy planning at present. So when you scan the horizon of what local governments are doing, or maybe even what, you know, different organizations or within a community are doing, is your view now to look for those that are really encouraging the transformational conversation as opposed to an incremental one? Is that how you're looking to sort of replicate the best of the thinking out there that people that are really pushing the bar? Yeah, and we have to look at the systemic issues and the rationale for why are things being done the way they are when we know that there are better options. So you got to ask yourself, okay, if there are better options for people, why aren't those getting the uptake that we know we need to have? And then you look at the system as a whole and how it gears people towards a certain solution. For example, that energy need, which was too high cost of energy pricing for certain communities because of the heavy reliance on heating um, from electricity. You could look at that and say, okay, um, so we have a problem here. It's causing costing too much for this customer um, for their energy needs. We can find better solutions for them that could save them money over the, over the course of time. What might be the possible ways we could meet that need? We could say that we could expand the natural gas system, which is what the government has done at present. But all of the infrastructure investment has a system in place that meets the need. So you can expand the natural gas pipeline. The customer doesn't pay anything right up front, but they will be paying annually, year after year after year, and never be independent, right? But If you wanted to help that person with distributed energy or to reduce their energy demand, that customer is pretty much on their own to find that solution. The only solution that really doesn't, that works for them as part of a system is to expand the natural gas system because you can rate base it across the energy system as a whole. If you could wave a magic wand and grant local governments with one new power to fight climate change or to take action, what would it be and, and what do you feel the impact would it, it would have on building more sustainable and resilient communities? If I could have my magic wand, I think the first thing I would do with my magic wand is take all the partisan bickering on climate change action. I would I would make, wave my magic wand. I wish I would have had this 25 years ago. We'd be in such better shape. <laughs> this magic wand. <laughs> but I think that's what I would um, do as part of it is first, I would make sure that we're all, we need everyone in society. This is a huge challenge that's ahead of us in terms of meeting this. I think the the result, like if we actually could imagine what a net zero community looked like, a net zero emission community looked like, we'd all want to live there right now. It would have a lot more transportation options. Our homes and our communities would be more livable. There'd be a lot more greenery. There'd be a lot more green space, a lot more active transportation infrastructure. Maybe the cars, you know, cars wouldn't dominate the percentage of road space allocated to moving them around. It would be more about 
How do we move people as efficiently as possible and as pleasantly as possible? Rather than our old trans, you know, there are our usual transportation thinking, which is how do we move vehicles as quickly as possible instead of actually thinking about it as how do we move people as effectively, efficiently, and as pleasantly as possible. So that my, my magic wand on that one would be actually getting the federal government, the provincial government, and the municipal governments all working together, all communicating with each other on what it is it that each of them needs. They each have a special area of expertise. And you know, I'd say municipalities are fantastic at implementation, but the Fed's got a lot of policy expertise. But if they all worked more coordinatedly and more collaboratively, I think we'd be further ahead than where we are at present. I also think, again, we spent far too much time bickering about whether to take action on climate. I don't have a problem bickering about different ways to act on climate change opportunities, but the idea of stalling action or you know, um, delaying action, I do have a problem. And if I we could wave my wand, it would be to get all levels of government all working together and not delaying. Well, if I find that magic wand, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. And, and I'm, I'm interested in knowing what keeps you inspired. You clearly have a lot of passion for this work. So, and it's, it's challenging work. And sometimes it can seem like you're not making any progress. So what keeps you going? I think that failure is just not an option. Just, just, it's just not an option. Yeah, I hear that from a few people that I interview when I ask this question. For them, it's you know, yeah, how can you how can you not stay focused and, and pushing for these changes? Because as you say, failure is not an option. Yeah, and I, I you know, I have gone into quite a few conversations. I, you know, when I do get the the I, I thankfully don't have to encounter too often, but sometimes you encounter climate change deniers, you know, and stuff. I I still kind of want to hear their perspective on what's their rationale for why they don't think we should act on it right now. And I think one of the most common things that I hear coming from them is that they keep telling me that climate has always changed and always will change. And over the course of, you know, geologic history. And I was like, you're absolutely right. Like the climate has always changed over that. And we've had five major extinctions already. But what you keep forgetting, you climate change denier, is that climate, the carbon cycle and climate disruptions were critical factors in every single one of those mass extinctions. And they're all connected up with messes into the carbon cycle. So as humans, we really don't have enough respect for the carbon cycle. Like we know about the water cycle and we learn about that in school, but we really need to up our game as in humanity on understanding and respect for the carbon cycle. Because you know, yes, you can mess with the carbon cycle, but it never ends well for living things at the time when you mess with it. So what lies ahead? What's got you excited in the next little while? I think, again, the disruptions that's coming to the environmental and climate change, like seeing, I, I will admit that when COVID first hit, I did go into a little bit of a depression because I had seen, I've been working in the climate change field for 25 odd years, 
And I've seen these kind of moments in critical mass where you felt like, holy smokes, society's really coming together and I think we're going to make it. And I remember when Al Gore came out with his Inconvenient Truth and that was like the mid to, you know, mid 2000s. And you saw really a good critical mass of momentum with governments and all of society kind of coming on to the idea that we need to act on our climate change challenge ahead of us. And then the financial crisis hit in 2008. And that climate change momentum really dissipated. And that was really terrible to see. And then when we were making such progress in Ontario with the cap and trade system, and when that got canceled, when the government, the Ford government came into power, that really hurt me as well, because I was so proud of Ontario's leadership in that area. And then I would say, you know, same thing happened with the youth movement when it was kind of really gaining a huge amount of momentum in 2019. And you saw that people were in the media and, and society as a whole was finally recognizing that we have too long. We've diddled that and delayed too long. We really got to act now. And uh, when COVID hit, I was really, really concerned. It's like, here we go again. Climate was making the momentum and we're going to fall on the back burner again. And thankfully, that hasn't happened. I think that COVID has kind of taught us a little bit of humility that we are not so apart from nature. And I think that's one of the also things like when people speak about climate change, they're like, we've got to save the environment or, you know, save the earth. And I was like, I keep thinking this isn't about saving the earth. This isn't about saving, you know, the environment. It's seen some crazy things in the past. It's this is about saving humanity and all the animals we are lucky enough to share this planet with. So the earth, you know, yes, we we want to protect the earth, but we want to protect the earth's carbon cycle and not disrupt it because if we do, humanity is going to pay the price for it. And unfortunately, so will all the other species we are lucky enough to share this great planet with. Well, thank you, Gabby, so much for uh, sharing your thoughts and the work that you're doing. And and again, if I find that magic wand, I'll be handing it over to you. And, and the world will be very happy if we can get everybody to be working together on climate change. I know, I would love to get that magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even need it. We can. We just need to make the decision to do it. And we can. Yeah. Thank you, Gabby. Thanks so much, Karen. Gabby and her team at the Clean Air Partnership know what it takes to build sustainable, healthy, and resilient communities. Join me for the next episode of Promethea Rising as we continue to interview people who are building an energy-conscious Canada. Canada.